Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we examine the best moments in sports one week at a time. I am your host, Dana Augusta, and this week, we're going to take a look at the events in sports history from February 28th to March the 6th that will be in our top five, which will also include a couple of notable name changes that occurred this week, which will become synonymous with sports greatness. Also, a future heavyweight champion making a thundering debut in Albany, New York, and the greatest night for a pro player in NBA history in a game that never officially ended. And also we will discuss this week's shout-out, which would be the 1970 Jacksonville University Dolphins basketball team, the first team in NCAA history to average over 100 points per game in a full season led by an iconic pro player in both the ABA and NBA that had one of the greatest runs for a small school in NCAA tournament history. And now, the main event. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta, and this is this week's main event. And the main event is, of course, the NBA All-Star Weekend or All-Star Game, which has been condensed because of COVID-19 restrictions. But the excitement and the overall anticipation of the All-Star Weekend here in Atlanta has been palpable to say the least as if someone who lives here really truly knows depending you know dealing with the traffic every day but of course that's another story but this weekend the beautiful southern city of Atlanta is the center of the basketball universe as it is hosting the 2021 NBA All-Star Game the NBA's mid-season glamour event of both entertainment and hoops right here in the Peach City. As with any year, the participants in the All-Star Weekend are best of the best when it comes to shooting, dunking, and overall skills. And All-Star Saturday night was one of the highlights of the NBA season where players are awarded individual honors in the three-point shootout, the skills competition, and the three-end dunk contest. While watching the festivities on television every year, I would find myself reminiscing on how All-Star Weekend was during my junior year, during my junior 
high years and my and my high school years and some college years on how cool it was and look for, and all the reasons why I would look forward to this every single year. And I began to think to myself, why don't I come up with a scenario or have an ultimate all-star game with the greatest players that I have ever seen in my life with these two eyes. So this is what this week's main event will be about. Coming up with the greatest three-point shootout, the greatest skills competition, and the greatest dunk contest, along with an ultimate all-star game with the most iconic players from the 80s and 90s and today coming together to hoops for one major game and ultimate bragging rights to say the least. Now, to me, that would be very, very interesting. And I hope that it will be interesting to all of you listening out there on this podcast. So without further ado, let's take a gander what I've come up with. Now, for the three-point shootout, of course, the three-point shootout is very simple. Who can make the most three-pointers in a certain amount of time? And in the beginning, when they first started this in the mid-'80s, there was one man that was better than everybody else coming out there with the warm-up jacket with the Celtics written across it. Of course, that was, of course, Mr. Larry Bird. He won it three times. As a matter of fact, he won the first three long-distance shootouts, as it was called back then. And uh, he's... the one of two three-time winners that's on this list. The others on the list that will be in competition with Larry Bird would be a one would be one person that a lot of people I think have forgotten about as a great three-point shooter, but he's been kind of lost in that. But he won it twice, and that was a man by the name of Mark Price from the Cleveland Cavaliers. He won it in 1993 and 1994. Of course, when you have Mark Price, you have other players that have won it twice, including Pedro Stoyakovich, who won it in, in 2003 and in 2004. Craig Hodges is the only other person to win the competition three times with the Chicago Bulls. Others include, of course, current player Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors, and then you have a lot of other notables, Dirk Nowitzki of the Dallas Mavericks, Drazen Petrovic of the New Jersey Nets, Reggie Miller, of course, one of the greatest clutch three-point shooters who ever lived. Michael Adams, who at one point held the record for the most consecutive games with at least one three-pointer. Tim Legler, currently of ESPN, but once upon a time, won a three-point contest in 1996. And another Hall of Famer, Chris Mullen. Now, these shooters are best from the best from three-point land. Larry Bird was the obvious choice of winning the first three, two three-point First three three-point shootouts. In the third year, Craig Hodges dethroned him. The others on the list made a living behind the stripe, including little known and little in statue Michael Adams of the Bullets, like before mentioned, with at least one three-point field goal in 79 consecutive games. Others include former champions. It would be one of the most entertaining aspects to have these legendary long-distance shooters compete for at least bragging rights of all time behind the three-point line. Another one, another event that was caught my eye, and this kind of happened kind of recently, was the skills competition. Now, skills competition combines speed, passing, shooting, and these players were the best in weaving in and out of trouble in pressure situations, making key plays when their teams needed it. You couldn't have a skills competition 
without the all-time games assist leader, and that's John Stocker, who will lead the way in this competition. Others include Kevin Johnson of the Phoenix Suns, one of the best pressure-packed point guards to ever play the game, but he's been somewhat lost over the years. You know, because of his lack of playoff success, but he was one of the, one of the great cogs of the wheel for the Phoenix Suns in the late 80s and early 90s. Others, Chris Paul is another, who's somewhat in that mold of a Kevin Johnson. John Starks of the New York Knicks, who led the Knicks to the 1994 NBA Finals alongside, um, Patrick Ewing. Um, Kevin Johnson, as before mentioned, Rolando Blackman of the Dallas Mavericks, one of the most underrated players in NBA history as far as his overall skill set. He's someone who could literally play anywhere on the court, ask him to do anything that he could do it for you with those great Dallas Mavericks teams with him along with Mark Aguirre. Those teams were just great coached by John McLeod back in the late 80s. And a couple of current players that could really – Put some pressure on the older guys. One is Giannis Antetokounmpo of the Milwaukee Bucks. As he's way bigger than all of these guys, but he's no less agile. No, no less agile than all of these others. Tremendously agile. That's why they call him the Greek Freak. And finally, you have Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, who could pretty much do anything with the basketball, even something that hasn't even seen yet. He is just that great with the basketball in his hands. And finally, the crown jewel of All-Star Saturday Night, of course, you have the slam dunk contest. And simply put, these are the greatest in-game dunkers to have ever laced up a pair of sneakers. First, the first of all, you have the king, Air Jordan himself, Michael Jordan, along with Dominique Wilkins, the human highlight film of the Atlanta Hawks. Also participating, believe it or not, will be LeBron James. Along with Kobe Bryant, Vince Carter, Spud Webb, who won it in 1986, standing only five foot seven inches tall, took away the trophy that year. And the man who started all has to be part of this in his prime, and it has to be Dr. J. Julius Irvin of the Sixers. Clyde DeGlide Drexler of the Portland Trailblazers, and another former winner, Jason Richardson of the Golden State Warriors. That would be my ultimate dunk contest. And those participants would take a high wire act and showmanship and power and all of those things combined into it. One of the greatest dunk contests that you could ever come across and ever could even conceive of. That would be the worth, that would be worth the price of admission, of course, anytime with those dunkers putting on the show for you guys. To conclude, that would conclude All Star Saturday night and there will be an event. That everyone will be waiting to see. And of course, when you have All-Star Weekend, the crown jewel will be the next day, will be the All-Star Game. And where else would it have something like that to take place? It would have to take place in Madison Square Garden, the mecca of basketball in New York City. Uh, how can you have an ultimate All-Star Game without being there? Uh, and then putting together this team of NBA legends that I've seen through the 1980s and 1990s and today, you know, it'll be, of course, divide up Eastern Conference versus Western Conference and which I have put together right here for you guys, uh, today. Um, first of all, we have the Eastern Conference and 
the when you think of the Eastern Conference from the 1980s and 90s into the present day, you think of tough, rugged players that had an abundance of skill and attitude. And this team features all of those things in abundance. And it features the power of LeBron James and Patrick Ewing, the trash-talking of Larry Bird and Charles Barkley, and the tenacious leadership and competitive nature of Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas. Plus, coaching the East would be a player that could keep all of the chaos to a minimum, and I can't think of anybody else than Phil Jackson of the Chicago Bulls. In my opinion, the greatest college, the greatest basketball coach in NBA history. Now, the starters would simply be these guys. At point guard, I would have Isaiah Thomas led the Pistons to uh, back-to-back NBA titles in the late 80s. And followed and, and shooting guard starting, of course, would be Michael Jeffrey Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. Follow that up would be the small and small forward would be LeBron James. And uh, at power forward starting would be at Larry Bird, six foot nine, uh, three time NBA um, NBA champion of the Boston Celtics. And rounding out the starting five would be Patrick Ewing of the New York Knicks. Now the reserves, I had to go back and forth on these because my reserves are going to be. I have some controversial picks. I have to keep some people off, but these are the best that I have ever seen. And I think that these guys really fit into the mode of what the Eastern Conference really was during my lifetime. The two point guards now, now, now to break it down, I have each position have two reserves, each one. I got two reserve point guards, two reserve shooting guards, two reserve small forwards, two reserve power forwards, and two centers. Okay, those are the guys that's coming off the bench. And the two point guards that I have is Maurice Cheeks of the, of the Sixers and Tim Hardaway of the Miami Heat. Tim Hardaway, of course, is known for his crossover, what he affectionately calls the U-step, two-step. And Maurice Cheeks, one of the best, one of the coolest under pressure guards to have ever played in the NBA, played alongside Dr. J and Moses Malone with Philadelphia in the early 80s, won that championship in 1983 with Philly. And shooting guard, the greatest clutch shooter of all time, Reggie Miller of the Pacers. And the other shooting guard is Allen Iverson of the, of the Sixers. One of the most electrifying, greatest, one of the greatest ball handlers ever to play in the NBA. The two small forwards would have an abundance of scoring coming off the bench at that position, which would be Julius Irving and Bernard King. Julius Irving, of course, to the Sixers and Bernard King, one of the most underrated shooters and pure scorers that the league has ever seen who played for the New York Knicks during the 80s. At power forward, you have two of the most opposite people to ever play the game. At one end, you have Charles Barkley the round mound of rebound in, in his prime with the Philadelphia 76ers. And the other one, the other power forward is Kevin McHale, the man with a thousand and one post moves down low, who could do pretty much anything down low if you ask, whatever you ask him to, he could pull it off. At center, you have Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale's teammate in Boston. Bird, Parrish, and McHale, known as quite simply the greatest uh, front court to have ever played the game together with the Celtics in the 80s. Robert Parrish would be the reserve center, along with Moses Malone, Mr. Fofofo himself of the Philadelphia 76ers. That would be my 
Eastern Conference Ultimate All-Star Team. Now, moving out west, and of course, when you talk about the Western Conference during the 80s and 90s, there will be so much scoring and so much smooth and just outright just tremendous offensive basketball talent is truly would be unbelievable. While the Eastern Conference is a little rough around the edges, the Western Conference All-Stars features high-scoring, high-rider acts that would keep everyone in attendance on the edge of their seats. Now, the floor leader, of course, would be Magic Johnson. And adding to the mix would be his backcourt mate, Kobe Bryant, which even with that image of Magic and Kobe playing against each other, playing with each other, I should say, in the in the backcourt would make so many Laker fans drool with anticipation just to see that. Uh, all of their Laker fantasies would come to life, you know, with Kobe getting passes from Magic. Adding to the play of the ball, the run would be guys like Clyde Drexler and high scoring reserves like Kevin Durant, George Gervin, and Sean Kemp. Adding to the balance of the team would be Tim Duncan and Akeem Olajuwon down low. And coaching the Eastern, the Western Conference would be Pat Riley, obviously. Especially because it would be a logical choice to have Riley as coach because who else would tell Kareem and Shaq that they're not starting? Okay, and that'll be pretty much the way I would see it. Now, the starters would be, of course, Irvin, Magic, Johnson, and Lakers would be the starting point guard with Kobe Bryant as a shooting guard. The small forward would be Clyde Drexler, the six foot seven swing man from the Portland Trailblazers who could play any number of positions. He's like the Swiss Army knife of that squad. Uh, power forward will be Tim Duncan, very smooth, Mr. Fundamentals, as Shaq used to call him, you know, storm with the San Antonio Spurs. And Akeem Olajuwon of the Houston Rockets. Akeem, the two-time finals MVP in uh, 1994 and 1995 with the Rockets. Um, the, the centerpiece of those Rockets teams in the mid-90s. And as aforementioned, Pat Riley, the head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, with his pedigree and his overall L.A. style and for his coaching acumen, he would be a logical choice to lead the West. Now, the reserves point guard, of course, would be John Stockton. But at the same time, another point guard that I kind of was going back and forth with, I went with Gary Payton, the glove, because it can't be all offense. You got to have some defense. And Gary Payton, known as the glove, was known for his defense and overall just outstanding play. Gary Payton of the Seattle Supersonics was one of the greatest on the ball defenders you could ever possibly see in any level of, in any level of basketball. The shooting guards will be George Gervin, the Iceman of the San Antonio Spurs. We're going a little bit old school with George Gervin, but I did see him play toward the late late stages of his career. And let me tell you, George Gervin was the smoothest basketball player you could ever want to see. Uh, another guy that's just as smooth is, his, uh, is the other shooting guard that's on the squad, and that's Steph Curry. He, Steph Curry has in the gym range. When you talk about shooters, as soon as he walks into the gym, Steph Curry could light it up from anywhere on the court. The other, the small forwards would be Chris Mullen of the Golden State Warriors once again, number seventeen, part of that great run TMC offense uh, out in Oakland during the late '80s with Mitch Richmond and Tim Hardaway and Chris Mullen. Those teams, coached by Don Nelson, was one of the one of the most underrated teams 
in the mid in the eighties with those guys and Kevin Durant, you know, the Slim Reaper himself. You know, he played for a lot of different teams, of course, I know, but I remember him most and he had the most success with Golden State, but Oklahoma City to me is his home, but that goes that that's another story for another day. Uh the two power forwards, Carl Malone of the Utah Jazz, a Louisiana kid like myself, for the Carl Malone, the mailman, him and John Stockton, you those two get together, there's magic to be happening on the court. And of course Sean Kemp of the Seattle Supersonics, the rain man from Seattle. You know, what can you say about this guy? Six foot ten, but plays like he's six foot four. Very athletic, tremendously aggressive, low, a thousand low post moves. You know, what more can you say about the Rain Man while he was with the Seattle Supersonics? Shaq and Kareem, two Lakers, two Laker iconic centers. You can't go wrong with either one. Both of them will be, you know, coming in and out of the game. You know, with Kareem, the all-time scoring leader in NBA history with his famous guy, Hook, and Shaquille O'Neal the most intimidating force the league has ever seen in any way, shape, or form. That would be my ultimate, we just heard, is the ult, my NBA ultimate, beyond words, All-Star Weekend. This is something that I had thought about for years and years and years. If only wish I could put that together, it wouldn't that be entertaining to say the least. And now, this week's Top 5. Hello once again and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we examine sports history one week at a time. Once again, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and just a reminder for all of you out there that you can follow the show on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, or you can hit us up on the Sports History Network website, where there are a huge collection of sports shows and sports history shows with a great group of talented individuals ready to give you some of the best insight and some of the best stories sports history has to offer so check us out we've at uh, the sports history network where we have a whole long list of guys that are very very talented at what they do and now this week's top five and top and this week's top five deals with a very different list of people and uh, the first one to start off with is number five. Peter Uberoth becomes Major League Baseball commissioner. Peter Uberoth led the effort to bring the Summer Olympics in 1984 to Los Angeles after a long gap where the U.S. hadn't hosted the Olympics. In fact, the last time they had hosted the Olympics before 1984 was in 1932, which, of course, was also in Los Angeles. And that's, the, of course, the Summer Olympics. They had two Winter Olympics in between there, once in 1960 and again in 1980. But 1984 marked the first time that the Summer Olympics would be held in on American soil since 1932. And Peter Uberoth was the one 
who led the way to lure the Olympic Committee to Los Angeles and once again at the LA Coliseum. And it was a huge, huge success because I remember watching that as a kid growing up. Um, and he became commissioner right after the Olympics ended. In fact, I think he took over as commissioner from uh, Bowie Kuhn around October of that year. So the number five event that took place this week in 1984 was Peter Uberoff becoming commissioner of baseball. Number four, this week in history, Mike Tyson in 1985 made his debut in Albany, New York, his professional debut by knocking out Hector Mercedes in the first round. In fact, it only took him a minute and 47 seconds into the first round to claim his first professional victory and in typical Mike Tyson style. He knocked out Mercedes in the first round in Albany, New York, and he was the headline of the bill. I remember seeing actually the highlights of it, and it was just a dominating performance by Iron Mike. Number three, Bayview Stadium in San Francisco opens, but a lot of people don't know it as Bayview Stadium. The New York Giants had recently moved to San Francisco in 1958, and so they decided to change the name to not only Bayview Stadium. They decided to change the name basically because of its location. The location of the stadium was a place called Candlestick Point in San Francisco, so they eventually changed the name that, that week in 1959 to Candlestick Park, where it become one of the iconic Stadiums in all of America and all of American pro sports, the home of the San Francisco Giants for a long, long time. And of course, the site of so many wonderful, so many great San Francisco 49er games over the years. So once upon a time, Candlestick Park was also known as Bayview Stadium. But thanks to the San Francisco Giants, they decided to change the name to Candlestick Park. Number three, another notable name change. In 1964, Cassius Clay changed his name because of his religion, converting to the Nation of Islam, changed his name to Muhammad Ali. This happened just a few days after Muhammad Ali knocked out Sonny Liston in the seventh round in Miami Beach. And because of his religious beliefs, he decided that he didn't want to be called Cassius Clay anymore because he figured that it was a slave name, which ironically enough, Cassius Clay the boxer was actually named after an abolitionist named Cassius Clay. So that's kind of a little bit of a strange twist or irony, that sort of thing. And number one, possibly the, and by far the greatest single game performance in NBA history. And it's a, it's been approached by a couple of people, but no one has ever really got there. And I don't think anyone would ever reach this. The number one, event this week in history was Will Chamberlain's 100-point game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. In the game, he scored the 100 points, but here's, the, here's a strange fact that nobody really realizes is the fact that the game ended when he hit this 100 point. There was still like 30-some seconds left to play in the game, and they didn't even finish the game because the fans that were there in attendance at Hershey was so impressed by Will Chamberlain's performance for the 100 point game that they, people started to emerge off of the, off of the, out of the stands to congratulate Wilt because of 100 points. That's something that no one in NBA history had ever done before and certainly haven't done since. One, th one of the greatest, by far the greatest offensive performance by one player in NBA history, of course, 
Will Chamberlain, 1962, this week in Hershey, Pennsylvania. That was this week's top five. And coming up next, to close out the show, the shout-out. And we have one big shout-out this week, and it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about coming up right after this. Okay, and to wrap up this week's show, we're going to be talking about the 1970 Jacksonville University Dolphins, which is the subject of this week's shout-out. And a shout-out to the Dolphins in 1970. They finished the year that year 27-2 and overall as an independent. And what's notable about that team was a couple of things. First, they were the first team in NCAA history to average one, over 100 points a game for a full season. And secondly, to couple with their overall win-loss record, they had one of the most iconic NBA and ABA players of that era, and that is seven foot one inch Artis Gilmore, who was seven foot one but seven foot five with the afro. Uh, and the Dolphins were a powerhouse that was just an incredible offensive machine that year. Of course. Averaging over 100 points per game was nothing to sneeze at, at, including which was during a time that had no three-point line. Another key player on that squad was the ninth was a six-foot-five guard named Rex Marker, who later became a coach in the Continental Basketball Association in the early 1980s. It was drafted right out of Jacksonville University by the Celtics in 1972, I believe it was. And but Gilmore was the lead cog in that Dolphins attack. At center, playing at seven foot one, obviously playing center. He would be a second team All American at Jacksonville University. The Dolphins would earn an invite to the 1970 tournament based on their incredible 27 2 record. And they started the season 13 and 0. Their first and only loss during the regular season came on January the 27th. Their only regular season loss to in state rival. Florida State, which was led by future NBA All future NBA All Star and Hall of Famer Dave Cowens, who would go on to be Lee, uh, Finals MVP in 1974 with the Celtics, and when they beat uh, the Milwaukee Bucks in one of the best NBA Finals of all time, they would lose to the, the, the Seminoles that year, 89 to 83 that that day for their only regular season loss. But they entered the tournament as a 16th rank, as a sixth ranked team in the AP poll. And they opened, they opened the tournament that year and beat Western Kentucky, who was the 12th, 12th ranked team in the country, 109 to 96 as Gail Moore would score 30 points and add 14, uh, actually 19 rebounds in that first round game. The second round game was a little bit tighter. In fact, very tight against, or against Iowa. Gilmore would lead the way with 30 points and 17 rebounds as the Dolphins would win another one, 104 to 103. The little school from North Florida continued to do their work, especially as the tournament shifted from Dayton, Ohio to Columbus, Ohio in the regional final where they would face high-powered University of Kentucky, one of the true college basketball blue bloods. 
Jacksonville led by 28 points with from Rex Morgan and 20 rebounds from Gilmore as they secured a 106 to 100 win to move them to their first ever trip to the Final Four that year, which was which would be played at Cole Field House in College Park, Maryland. In the national semifinal, they would find themselves taking on St. Bonaventure, led by another future NBA Hall of Famer, Bob Lanier. But unfortunately for the Brown Indians of St. Bonaventure, they would be without the services of Lanier because Lanier had injured his knee the game before against Villanova, but somehow the St. Bonnies managed to make their way into the Final Four. But without the services of uh, Bob Lanier, the St. Bonaventure would be no match for Gilmore and the rest of the Jacksonville Dolphins as their unbelievable Cinderella run would continue all the way to the national championship game as Jacksonville would knock off St. Bonaventure 91-83 to with Gilmore with chipping in with 29 points and 21 rebounds. So the finals, the Dolphins would find themselves taking on UCLA, the class of college basketball, and winners of six of the last seven national titles. But that's where the dream and the run of the Jacksonville Dolphins would come to, a, to an end. Gilmore was only limited to 19 points as the Dolphins would lose to UCLA 80-69 to in the national championship game. Behind the play of Bruins' backcourt duo of Sidney Wicks and Curtis Rowe, the Dolphins was no match as UCLA racked up a huge lead in the second half after the Dolphins actually took actually had the lead for most of the first half. But the Bruins, it was, of course, their sixth national championship in seven years. Gilmore would, of course, leave, graduate, and leave Jacksonville University to, to the ABA, where he was the top pick of the Kentucky Colonels of the ABA, and later on would join the NBA after the ABA's dispersal draft in 1976, where he would join the Chicago Bulls and play the remainder of his career. Well, that would do it for this week's edition of the Historically Speaking podcast. I'm glad everyone was able to check me out this week and stay tuned for another edition coming up pretty soon. So until next time, you'll have a great week and I'll catch you on the flip side. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. 
And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.